0: I have previously announced that we were going to begin a new sermon series on Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three minor prophets. And we are, indeed, going to do that. These three are the uh, as the post-exilic prophets. Their ministries are associated with what happened after Judah came back from exile in Babylon. As I contemplated this thought, well, wouldn't it be helpful for us to study some of the history surrounding the return from exile um, before considering those three post-exilic prophets? And so what we're going to do over the coming months is uh, a little bit of an interlacing of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah along with these three minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Uh, So, for the next few weeks, we'll study Ezra chapters 1 through 6, and then we'll begin Haggai, because the first six chapters of Ezra describe the first wave of the return from Babylonian exile and the rebuilding of the temple, and it specifically mentions the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah stirring up the people to complete that work of building the temple. And so, tonight, we are going to... Uh, begin this new sort of super series on these five books with Ezra chapters 1 and 2. This is a longer reading than ordinary, and so we're not going to have a New Testament reading. I'm going to read these two full chapters um, to set the stage. Uh, As a warning, there will be a lot of Hebrew names and numbers in chapter 2, so stick with it all the way to the end. We want to hear how... This book is, is set in stage for the history of these, of these return uh, returnees from exile. I considered skipping, skipping some of those, um, but I would rather get the full sense of how this biblical author wants us to, to hear these names enumerated, these families enumerated. Um, and so without further ado, please stand for the reading of God's word in turn to Ezra chapter 1. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we embark on uh, the study of Israel's history, after or Judah's history, after the return from exile and the prophets who ministered to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we pray that same Holy Spirit would be with us to illumine our hearts, to shine his light on your words so we would understand it, and so that we uh, elect exiles of the dispersion might have hope um, in our uh, heavenly calling uh, to be part of the people that you have restored and given freedom, release, and you are building into the new people of God uh, to endure as your as your temple into the age to come. So help us now as we begin this to read with, and listen with understanding. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezra, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar he carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to shesh the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did shesh bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2172, the sons of Shephetiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 775, the sons of Pahath-Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 945, the sons of Zakkai, 760, the sons of Bani, 642, the sons of Bibai, 623, the sons of Ozgod, 1222, the sons of Adonikam, 666, the sons of Bigvi, 2056. The sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gibar 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Natopha, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Arim, Kephirah, and Beeroth, 743. The sons of Ramah and Giba 621. The sons of Mikmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sina'a, 3630. The priests... The sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1052. The sons of Pashur, 1247. The sons of Harim, 1017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel, of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atter, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita the sons of Shobai in all 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabeoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Paidon, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedil, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Riya, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nikoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephisim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barcos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Timah, the sons of Naziah, and the sons of Hatifa. The sons of Solomon's servants. The sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jaala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddle, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth, Hatsabayim, and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Karub, Adan, and immer though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakos, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers, Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now, the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Amen. You may be seated. So, from the point of view of the surface of the earth... It looks at first like the sun and the other planets and really the whole universe are revolving around planet Earth, right? And of course, for a long time, people took for granted that that's exactly what was happening until they realized, oh, wait a second, Earth is not at the center at all. We're just one of many planets orbiting around the sun. And, and our sun is just one star in this just one arm of the Milky Way galaxy, and the Milky Way is just one of many galaxies in our little corner of the cosmos. Luke Skywalker described his home by saying, if there's a bright center to the universe, you're on the planet that's farthest from, right? And that's how life can sometimes feel here on planet Earth. But doesn't that make it all the more remarkable? seeing the universe this way. To think that God has concentrated his plan for history here. All that vastness of space, all of those intricate motions of zillions of stars, and it's here, here that God placed mankind. It is here that God is working out his plan for history. It is here that God himself entered into that cosmos by becoming man and by living here and walking and dying and rising here of all places. Now that grand perspective written in those grand strokes across the universe holds true also. Kind of like a fractal. You zoom in on earth itself, and what has happened on this planet, the history of the human race, where you see these vast empires, one after another, rise and fall down through the centuries, these mighty kings, millions of men and women coming and going off the stage of history. And yet, through it all, God's plan has been concentrated. It's been focused intensely, If you read the history of the Old Testament, In this one little place on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, on this one little people constantly caught in the middle among all of these competing superpowers of their day. But it is there that God is at work. It is there that God is working out the heart of his plan for history, preserving this people in this place and preparing himself to enter history And to live and walk among them and die and rise from the dead. There, of all places, right? It's the same thing. That is the kind of perspective that we need to have as we approach chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. By the way, if you'd like to know the outline for tonight, we're starting here with verses 1 through 4, the royal proclamation. A royal proclamation then will be verses 5 through 11, a repeated pattern, and then all of chapter 2 will be a returning people. Royal proclamation, a repeated pattern, a returning people. All right. So Ezra opens at a time of major change, not just for the people of God, but for the whole ancient world. Um, You know that Jerusalem was destroyed by the armies of Babylon in 586 B.C. People carted off into captivity or exile out of the promised land. And Babylon, of course, was a very powerful empire, um, but as these things go in history, it was a comparatively short-lived empire. And in 539 B.C., just a few decades later, Babylon itself was defeated and supplanted by the next great superpower, which was the Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great was their leader. And as you can imagine, he now had quite a lot on his plate as his empire expanded and he figured out, well, what are we going to do with all of the people and the lands that that Babylon had conquered before and now they're under our control? What is going to be our policy, our strategy for managing these various peoples in various places. There's an interesting piece of um, history here. In the ruins of ancient Babylon, which of course is near very near modern uh, Baghdad, Iraq, um, archaeologists in the 1800s unearthed there an object called the Cyrus Cylinder. The Cyrus Cylinder, which is just, just what it sounds like. It's a cylinder made out of clay, but it has writing all over it that described Cyrus's policy towards the people of Babylon and the surrounding region after he took over. It doesn't talk about Judah particularly, but it's an analogy. Because on this cylinder, he does a few interesting things. For one thing, he gives credit for his victory not to his own Persian god. He gives the credit to Marduk, who's the Babylonian god. And uh, he also talks about he, uh, how, he, how, he, how Cyrus took um, several of the uh, local gods that the king of Babylon had removed from their temples in other cities, and he put them back in their old temples and restored the worship of those idols in those original places. In other words, Cyrus was not about imposing Persian religion on these um, Babylonian people. Instead, what he wanted to do is he wanted to gain uh, support and goodwill from these new subjects uh, by actually restoring and reviving their local religions. Uh, From a religious point of view, you can imagine Cyrus thinking, well, I might as well have those gods on my side too. I might as well have these people praying to those gods as well for me. Or we could choose to be a little more cynical and think, well, it's actually just a political, kind of diplomatic decision. Cyrus just wants to get these people on his side by being nice to them so that they'll see him as this kind of benevolent conqueror, even a liberator in some sense. Okay, so how does this impact the way... We read Ezra chapter 1. Well, first of all, I think that it should lead us to take with a pretty large grain of salt the, it's putting it pretty strongly, but I'd say the lip service that King Cyrus pays to the Lord in this proclamation. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth well, yeah, you say, said the same thing about the god of Babylon, Marduk. Um, my, my dad would tell my mother, oh, you look beautiful today. She would say, oh, you say that to all your wives. <laughs> Which is true, because she was the only one. And here we could tell Cyrus, oh, you say that to all your gods, except that he didn't have just one. Um, he was an equal opportunity idolater. Um, nevertheless, that's not the only vantage point. For viewing this letter. Because as we read this from the perspective of the completed history of salvation, so we read this from the perspective of the people of God. We don't have to read this cynically at all. The cynically regarding Cyrus's motivations, maybe. Yeah, from the Persian court's perspective, this is probably a diplomatic chess move to put the people of Judah back in their land and restore the worship of God and rebuild the temple. Cyrus surely cares very little, if at all, about the worship of the one true God, or at least about it being exclusive in any way. But what Ezra does, what the scriptures are constantly doing, is it turns everything inside out. And it teaches us to see Cyrus's edict here, and all of his power, and all of his plans... From a God's eye point of view. See, Cyrus fancies himself to be the greatest king and conqueror of his day. The most powerful person in the world. And that's the way that he wants Judah and all of the other nations of his day to see him. What is this passage revealing to us? Why, in an ultimate sense, did Cyrus make this royal proclamation? He made it, first one, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Here we should remember what Jeremiah had written to the exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 29. For thus says the Lord, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And so you and I should think, wait a second, who is really in charge here? Who's grand plan is really being worked out by this decree. Who is really on the throne with a capital T? And who is the one who's really, despite what he thinks, playing a part in a machine and a kingdom so much bigger than himself? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, Proverbs says. He turns it wherever he will. After all, it was the Lord, wasn't it, who in Isaiah 45, many years before, identified Cyrus by name. He said, you, Cyrus, I'm going to give tremendous power as a world leader, But why? Why am I going to do that? It is for the sake of my servant Jacob, Israel my chosen. I am the Lord, Isaiah 45 says in that context. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Whatever Cyrus thinks about this policy of supporting many gods, right? I equip you, the Lord tells him ahead of time. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you. Oh, whoops. Um, sorry, I, I read back at the top of the page. There is none besides me. Uh, that's the end of the Isaiah 45 quote. Okay, so in that light then, um, Cyrus's proclamation takes on uh, a different aspect, doesn't it? A different kind of meaning. Because you can see this irony, right? That what Cyrus perhaps insincerely said was truer than he realized, right? That the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Just what he said he was going to do way back in Isaiah 45. And he has charged me, yes he has, to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And so the decree continues. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And there you can kind of see the limitations of Cyrus's theology, right? Cyrus thinks, well, this God goes here in this city, this God goes there in that city. Israel's God goes in Jerusalem. I'll put him back where he belongs, not realizing, of course, that The Lord is the God over all lands, all peoples. And that this place, Jerusalem, is... Even though it is in the middle, as it were, of kind of average solar system and a kind of average arm of an average galaxy in the ancient Mediterranean world, this place, Jerusalem, is in fact the center of the plan of God. The center of the history that God is working out that is so much bigger than any of the conquering kings and empires that are by now littering the world stage along the way. Now, verse 4 sets up for the next section, which I've called a repeated pattern. And the pattern I'm referring to there, I wonder if any of you have guessed it yet, it's the pattern of the exodus. The pattern of... Of the Exodus. This is something commentators routinely notice about this first chapter. That Cyrus's decree and the way that it's carried out um, echo what happens in Exodus chapter 12. When Israel uh, finally leaves Egypt right after the original Passover event, it says the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. And the people of Israel, it says, had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And later, as Derek Kidner points out, all of that wealth in Exodus is used for what later in the book? which used for the construction and the adornment of the tabernacle now what's happening well the exodus you think about what it represented the exodus represented the creation of israel as a nation well now this return from exile is like a recreation of israel as a nation it's a, it's a new exodus it's, leading to a new beginning for the people of God, and a new entry into the promised land. right? And just like last time, so again, God is providing for Israel. He's moving the heart of the king who previously held them captive. He's leveraging all of the wealth and the power of that great empire that once enslaved them to supply the rebuilding of this place where he once again is going to dwell with his people and be their God in the temple that these returning exiles are going to build. That's what the return from exile is about. It is the exodus reprised and renewed. It's a new beginning for the people of God. And in particular, verses uh, 7 through 11 focus on the vessels of the house of the Lord, these valuable, holy objects that had been used previously in the worship of the temple. Uh, You may remember from the book of Daniel that Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, uh, had that infamous feast where he brought out the vessels of gold and silver. It says that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem so that the assembled nobles at the feast could drink out of. They're desecrating these holy things, making light of them. And that's the night, of course, of the handwriting on the wall when Belshazzar is killed. Well, now those same holy objects are being brought out for a very different purpose. So that they can be restored to their intended use in the new temple that's about to be built. Just think about how easy it would have been for all of those objects to be lost for them just to have gotten scattered, looted, sold. But what an evidence this is of the Lord's very careful providence in preserving even these these vestiges of the worship that once took place in the old temple, now destroyed. Saving them so carefully so that there would be this continuity so that his people could use them once again in the temple that's about to be reconstructed. And he used the Babylonians and the Persians to do all of this, to keep those treasures archived and secure down through those decades of exile until the right moment when they could be brought out again and when they could be given entrusted to these uh, returning people, to this faithful remnant for this new revival of the worship of God. The Lord is providing for his own worship and equipping his people to put it into practice what the Lord always does, every generation of the church. Now, <clears throat> chapter 2, obviously has a lot of names. It's easy to get lost in here. I'm very patient earlier me reading the whole thing aloud. Let me just orient you to some of the big sections of this chapter and why they're important. It starts out with the, the, the leaders of the people headed up. The list is headed by Zerubbabel. Uh, Zerubbabel, by the way, was descended from the kings of Judah, descended from David. He's in the bloodline of David. Uh, He's actually listed in the royal line of Jesus' royal ancestors in Matthew chapter 1. And so Zerubbabel is kind of the big figurehead of what what commentators like to call this first wave of returning exiles. And um, the three three waves often being enumerated as the the Zerubbabel wave, then Ezra, then Nehemiah. These three great leaders who mark the history of this uh, double, um, kind of uh, double-decker Ezra Nehemiah story. Um, it's under Zerubbabel's leadership that the temple is rebuilt. That's the main task. Excuse me, the main task of this first wave. Uh, and then there's the work of Ezra. Uh, and then later Nehemiah, quite a number of years later. Okay, so after that list of leaders, uh, through verse 2, next you have a, a general list of the number of the men of the people of Israel. Um, listed, Some of it is listed by heads of various families. Some of them are listed by the places where these families are from. And this adds up here uh, to quite a few thousands of people. This is, this is not some tiny skeleton crew coming back to Jerusalem. And yet, on the other hand, these are small numbers compared with what Judah used to be. Compared with the number of people who were carried into exile. Often, we speak of a faithful remnant, that that major theme that appears time and again through the prophets. That stump, Isaiah speaks of, that's going to be left behind with life still in it when the covenant tree has been chopped down in the judgment. This is the faithful remnant returning now to the land. The stump with that shoot beginning to sprout again. In verses 36 to 42, um, you get the priests and the Levites, this special category among the people as a whole. Obviously, if the temple is going to be rebuilt, and the worship of God is going to be revived there. You're going to need these holy, qualified men, these descendants of Aaron to be the priests, and then their extended family members, the Levites, to provide for the service and the administration and the music and all of the rest that the temple will require according to the law of God. Some of the people, as we find out, had trouble proving that they were actually Israelites at all. They wanted to come back, but they couldn't prove their ancestry. Uh, And in particular, this was a problem for those who were claimed to be from priestly families. And this created a problem because the law of God was very specific that only the descendants of Aaron could serve as priests. And... And so, as they were seeking to follow God's law very carefully, these people had to be told, well, you're going to have to wait. You can't serve as priests until we can get clarity on this, either through finding new records they're currently missing, or it may take a supernatural revelation from God um, using these sacred objects, the Urim and the Thummim, to seek uh, the Lord's supernatural guidance. But they were going to need to wait until the high priest was in place who could ask the Lord these important questions. All of this, uh, I think, in that section shows the seriousness of this community of people about following the law of God, about being very careful to order their new life in the land by his word. And that's a theme that we're going to see developed all through these two books. Um, You may have been holding out hope that I was going to kind of pull a exegetical rabbit out of the hat and show you some deep, profound, earth-shattering application from chapter two. Uh, I'm not going to do that. So much of the purpose of studying this chapter carefully is it's about context. It's about setting the stage for what's going to happen later in the book. I shouldn't try to force these names and numbers to say more than they do. We shouldn't make too little of them either, though. Because you see, these are the people that God has preserved through the exile just as he promised he would do through the prophets. These people represent those promises coming true as a living reality, not just an idea. We talked this morning about how the gospel is not just a thought bubble That it's about God's acts in time and space in the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. Similarly, those promises of the prophets of future restoration are not just a thought bubble, not just an ideal to aspire to. They're coming true in history with these particular people that have names and numbers. It is this community that God is using. To make that plan for the promised future come through. It's through their hand. It's through their generous giving. It's through their faithful obedience. It's through their steady plotting. Their sacrifice. Personal sacrifice. Their willingness to keep forging ahead when there's opposition. See, that is how God's plan gets done. It's through actual people carrying it out by his grace and power. It's through these particular people that God is going to make his plans and his promises come true. And the way it's, it's how he is setting up also for the future beyond their time. These people are God's tool for setting up for the whole remaining history of God's saving work in this land from this people to lead all the way up to the birth and ministry and the redeeming work of Jesus. Jesus. You can draw a straight line from these returning exiles to the birth of Christ. This, the rescue of this remnant from exile, their return to the land. This is not just a symbol. This is not just a, a picture, abstract picture of God, uh, the way God rescues us from sin and death and brings us into his kingdom. Although it is that, but it's not just a picture. It's not just a preview of those things. It is a concrete step towards those things. It is part of God's plan for actually bringing history to that goal of our salvation and beyond that to the final goal of the whole cosmos and the return of Christ. So what does this have to do with us, as the people of God living today? I mentioned earlier you may feel sometimes like, like Luke Skywalker, that if there's a bright center to the universe that, that your life feels like it's Somewhere on a planet farthest from that bright center. And as true biblical Christianity is more and more pushed to the margins, the outer rim, if you will, of culture and public life, you may feel like in the church that you're part of an institution, part of a way of life. It's very small, very weak, very insignificant compared to the great movements, the great power centers, the big concerns of the movers and shakers of our day. But what I want you to see, beloved, from this passage, is that this is the way that God operates. Time after time in the history of the scripture, in the history of his people, this is so often how God has accomplished his work, how he has moved his purposes ahead. In history, it is through the little things. It is through the remnant who are walking by faith. It is through them that he rebuilt his temple. It is through them that he restored his worship. It is through them that he paved the way for the future. And it's through these individuals and families with names and faces and children and wives and husbands, grandparents, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, great uncles. It's through these people You see, now it's through these people. It's through you and me. This is how God is getting his plan done on earth. It's through people like us. It is not just through people like us. It is through us. That is our task on earth. It is our work. It is our mission. And that is something that is remarkable to be a part of. That in Christ, we are God's remnant people. And through us, he is working to establish his worship. And his kingdom on the earth. And you get to be a part of that. And something we can learn from these returning exiles is that we also are to carry out that work that he has given to us with careful attention to his word, with a confident trust that our God, the creator king of the universe, the Lord of lords, and the king above all earthly power is going to leverage all of his cosmic authority to see that his plan for us in the Lord Jesus Christ succeeds by his grace, by his power. That's a very hopeful thing to be a part of. So Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. Yeah. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And Lord, if you were not on our side, we would have been swallowed up. Oh Lord, we are so thankful for this picture of your promises coming true through these particular people. This little nation that you were, you were rebuilding so that your worship might be restored, and your kingdom might come and your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven, so you might prepare the way that work of salvation you are going to bring to fruition in the coming of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we get to be part of that same reality. Now a little further on down the road of history, now looking back on that work Christ has accomplished, but still serving you, the great King of kings and Lord of lords, still living out and working out your plan Lord, we ask that you would please help us to look to you, to pay careful attention to your word, and to trust that you are going to keep working your purposes out through us. And we do pray that in our families, in our homes, in resurrection, in this region, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the church throughout the world, Lord, your kingdom come your will be done here among us by our hands on earth as it is in heaven until Christ comes again. We ask this in his name. Amen.